This week's episode is brought to you by K16 Solutions. Whether you need help migrating course content to a new LMS platform or are looking for a more affordable way to archive student data, visit k16solutions.com to learn more about their migration and archiving solutions. That's k16solutions.com. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at EdSurge. Big-name colleges and universities were already getting serious about online education even before the pandemic. And that already growing interest has ballooned since COVID-19 forced pretty much every institution to teach temporarily online. But lately, there's been an interesting trend in how some big state universities have decided to get into online learning with a big splash. Here's the emerging approach. A university looking to do more online buys an existing college that already has thousands or even tens of thousands of online students. Purdue University did it back in 2017 when it purchased the for-profit Kaplan University, which at the time had 32,000 or so students, most of them online. University of Arizona followed a similar playbook in 2020 when it bought the for-profit Ashford University, which had 35,000 online students at the time. And more recently, the University of Massachusetts announced that it would essentially buy control of Brandman University, a nonprofit institution with roughly 10,000 online students. What is going on here? Is this going to keep happening in state after state? Why don't these well-known universities just build their own online campuses instead of buying institutions that actually have a very different kind of faculty and a different model? And what does this trend say about the future of online education, both at colleges and at schools? We're digging into those questions this week. To help me do that, I talked with the new chancellor of UMass Global, David Andrews. UMass Global, as the University of Massachusetts calls this online spinoff, it's still adjusting to its fusion last year with Brandman University. Brandman was created by Chapman University, a liberal arts institution in California, way back in 1958, to serve students in the military and other non-traditional age students. David Andrews has been at the helm for only a few months, and he brings an interesting perspective as someone who has long worked to use tech to better tailor education for individual students. He likes to use the term precision education for what's possible, which is borrowed from the medical field, where precision medicine is one that aims to give precise treatments for patients. Andrews was most recently president of National University, and before that, he was dean of education at Johns Hopkins University. I started by asking David Andrews, why did University of Massachusetts want to buy Brandman University to turn it into its online arm? Uh, For a number of reasons. One is the the brand identity for uh, Brandman, the identity and reputation of University of Massachusetts Global was stronger and had a broader reach. Uh, Brandman was um, mostly in California, uh, some in Washington. Uh, but the, the reach across the country and the desire to grow the footprint of the institution both across the United States and beyond was shared with the University of Massachusetts as they were looking at their online aspirations and their aspirations to serve working adults primarily. Uh, so it was a good fit for the two of them to come together, and Brandman needed the 
the uh, reputation and brand identity. There's also some value in large public institutions like University of Massachusetts and Purdue and Arizona State uh, to have an entity that is affiliate, but affiliated but remains relatively separate uh, in its governance structure and its autonomy so that you can do things more easily than the traditional structure uh, is able to do. You can innovate, you can uh, create new strategies to reach online learners, use technology in new and different ways in in a bit faster um, mode than you can in a traditional institution. Oh, that's so interesting. And so basically, you know, it also is the case that often there's some skepticism and, and nervousness by the traditional faculty at the flagship. You know, I know that we reported on a lot of that at Purdue when Purdue Global happened um, and we did podcast episodes with both a faculty critic of that move and with the president of of uh, Purdue Global that was excited about it and tried to, you know, kind of work through the, the various arguments there. Um, it seems like it seems like the um, that is a big part of it. It seems like is that having a separate um, a separate governance to to allow the kind of faster moving and and non traditional things. Um, that, that seems like a big part of why these trends are happening. Then, absolutely, and a completely different faculty model that we are aspiring to. Uh, you know, we um, we rely on adjuncts a lot more than the traditional institutions, and most all open. Uh, uh, adult serving spaces, have fewer numbers of full-time faculty. Most institutions, including University of Massachusetts Global, don't have tenure systems. So the cost structure on the instructional side is lower, which allows us to create uh, opportunities at a lower cost for some of our students. And so that um, that's a very attractive factor. The governance is uh, a bit lighter sometimes in um, non-traditional adult-serving institution uh, in terms of how faculty sentence work and faculty decision-making works. Across all those institutions, faculty still have control of the curriculum and decision-making around content and subject matter expertise. There's a bit more um, ability in a non-traditional model to rethink the faculty role, which we think is is very important. We have faculty tutors at this point, tutorial faculty that work in our competency-based education program because the program is self-paced and the courses don't look like traditional courses with a traditional beginning and ending point. Uh, We have coaches, we have advisors that now have windows into the instructional experience. And so you have an ability to create a more integrated support system for students if you're not compartmentalizing faculty as separate from the rest of the institution and and fully um, kind of ceding control to, to faculty. And faculty have always had that level of autonomy and control in traditional institutions. And, you know, the argument, what would you say to a professor, maybe at UMass, and maybe you've heard some of this, who worry that that faculty involvement, though, is the secret sauce for making the high-quality of U.S. higher ed? Well, that level of um, independence, I think, is is um, fantastic when you have, you know, high-quality, well-trained faculty who are committed to instruction in addition to their research. Nothing wrong with faculty doing research. 
but I think we've, um, and I spent most of my career in very traditional institutions coming to National University, my previous presidency, uh, from Johns Hopkins University, one of the most selective institutions in the country and one of the highest quality instructional experiences. You know, that's a different type of a faculty member who is operating at that level. And even at that level, the, the premium was on the research capacity of those faculty, not necessarily their ability to re- reach students. And the necessity of reaching a, a very diverse range of students in terms of you know, their preparation is very different at University of Massachusetts Global than it was at Johns Hopkins University. You know, when, when you handpick your students in a highly selective institution, you know, they respond pretty well to a lot of different types of instruction. Uh, and they've demonstrated in their history as a student their ability to do that. You know, so the pressure is not on faculty in those institutions to teach to an incredibly wide range of learners and be successful in that. So I think the model moving forward, I don't think, I, I'm committed to the model moving forward, is much more of a many-to-one. You got you need an army of people who are deployed just in time based upon what you know about students in order to help them get through the hurdles that uh, they face as adult learners. And those hurdles are so varied. You know, some of those hurdles are related to child care uh, and the inability to, to participate in synchronous courses because those courses are scheduled during mealtime. Um, in that same cohort of students, you've got other students that don't have time management issues at all. They've not been well prepared in math and they need really, really strong tutoring one-on-one in math in order to get through that hurdle. So being able to deploy doesn't really fit a model where we schedule our courses, you know, a year out, two years out sometimes. Um, And if you can show up for those courses, you can show up. If you can't show up for those courses, you can't. And so the heterogeneity of the population in working adults mandates us using a, a broad range of faculty and not all traditional faculty are committed to that model. It's, it is interesting to me that it seems like the different brands, if you will, to have a separate, not just a unit, but a to have UMass Global is to say, it's also about audience then. You have your you know traditional campuses in the, the UMass system, and this is really signaling, um, and that, that serves like, you know, that's designed at least historically to serve a more um, traditional student or people going to a campus and, and committed to getting to the campus and being physical um, in person. Whereas this brand and model is really um, saying we are opening to looking for st- other students besides just that, right? Absolutely. Uh, a good bit of the undergraduates <clears throat> in these institutions that are serving working adults you know, our average undergraduate is 35 years of age, has multiple transcripts from other institutions, um, and as many as 100 credit hours coming in. You know, some from community colleges, some from multiple institutions that they've cobbled together, some credits that were awarded through military education and professional development through mapping onto ACE credentials. Um, and you know, they need to finish their degree and they have so many different life circumstances that make them different. It's a very different population and to treat them and serve them the same way you serve a traditional population of residency-based, historically residency-based 18 to 22-year-olds 
just doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's very problematic to get that done. And until we had the availability of kind of technology that reached students uh, where they are and the data systems to, to create predictive analytics to understand what they need, sometimes before they understand what they need, um, is essential in order to get high levels of, of success. So, uh, and, you know, these are, most of our students are no-nonsense students. They want the path of least resistance. I think the, you know, the, the, the way we think we should think about quality is not the quality of um, the experience based upon traditional metrics of the credentials that the faculty have, but on the outcomes that, that we're able to produce. And if the outcomes are apples to apples, then the process of getting there should be less relevant. Uh, and that's where we're, we're challenged to say, how do we assess students and what they know and can do in ways that help us support the, you know, the quality claims that we need to have in order to, to be successful? And much of that needs to be workforce-relevant outcomes for us. Uh, most of our working adults, 90-plus percent, say they came back to school to either get a better job or enhance the job they currently have. Um, so we're laser-focused on how do we deploy the best types of support uh, towards the end that the students have identified, and for most of our students, that's uh, workforce-related. So interesting. So on back to back to the trend of state universities um, kind of subsuming a existing online powerhouse, if you will, or a large place with a large online offering already. We've seen this, like you mentioned, Arizona, Purdue, um, and but there are 50 states and plenty of states that haven't done something like that yet. Do you think we'll see more of that in the coming couple of years? Well, I think that's part of the motivation for uh, institutions looking for partners that give them um, a better market position in terms of size because there is a, a belief within the adult learner sector that there'll be a shaking out of some of the smaller players and the larger players will have economies of scale that will help them uh, thrive. And so it is part of that. So I think we'll see more of it, but there may be few, fewer players reaching across multiple states. So, I mean, most of the play is um, a good bit of the, the strategy is to go into those states that don't have as many opportunities and provide those opportunities. Um, will they respond by creating those opportunities within their own states? Probably uh, moving forward. And, you know, we learned a lot during the pandemic, but, and, and it was kind of two camps. Um, and this is true for K-12 as well. I spent most a good bit of time in the K-12 sector as the deans of colleges of education. And coming out of the pandemic, there were those that, you know, thought it was a horrendous experience. Um, it was the first time they'd done it. They didn't have the right technology. It wasn't set up right. Uh, they tried to do it maybe inappropriately. I saw a Zoom meeting with uh, kindergartners trying to do show and tell. Uh, that was not the highest quality uh, <laughs> in terms of of uh, being able to manage uh, turn-taking with um, with that audience. But the first time we do anything, it doesn't turn out very well, and we learned a lot through that. So there are still people that came out of the pandemic thinking, this is awful, I'm never going to do it again. And others, I, I think, you know, at least half, if not more, that came out and said, this is not so bad. 
Uh, we see this in the international market. You know, the, the international students in higher education were forced to do things online. And five years ago, there was relatively little appetite for working with U.S. partners in the online space. Since the pandemic, there's been a, a much different mindset uh, in international countries because they tried it and it wasn't that bad. And they know the second time they do it, they'll get better. Um, and down the road, they can create a high-quality experience. Does that mean, you mean those international institutions actually creating their own programs, or do you mean international students No, I think adopting like and using the, the U.S. brands that have so much value uh, in their countries and, and a combination of studying a, a good portion of their program uh, in their home country and then migrating to the United States to for the, the capstone experiences and shorter experiences. You know, two plus two years, uh, three plus one in terms of years at the undergraduate level. And uh, we're seeing a, a really different set of conversations around those issues right now. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that I've, we've certainly seen a lot of coverage of the changing um, audience for U.S. higher education um, of, of international students. So that, But that aspect, just to sit on that, so to follow up on that for a minute, does that mean that UMass Global is more actively courting students abroad now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we uh, part of the reason for the for the name and the you know the brand change and identity was to to reach a, a broader audience internationally. And Brandman had had very little experience with um, international students at scale. Which countries do you see the biggest opportunity right now? Well, recent early exploration. Um, we've got some opportunities in, in Vietnam, opportunities in India, uh, some controversial opportunities in Saudi Arabia that we need to, to play out and explore. Uh, so many different, uh, mostly English-speaking countries, though. Um, and the competition is with essentially Canada and Australia and a number of those countries. Who are doing this, have the same idea, in other words. Yeah, well, can and, and and they have different immigration policies that um, allow students to stay for longer and work um, and and get jobs in those countries, whereas the United States is tougher to do that. So there's a competitive advantage in English-speaking countries, uh, often for Canada and Australia, New Zealand, even. What's the what's the case you can make to a student, say, in Vietnam? Like, why should they? go to UMass Global when, especially with a global reach, like they could go to an online university anywhere? I think the ability to differentiate, uh, and that's going to be uh, to, to di differentiate the needs of students and to respond to those needs on demand. Uh, we're seeing students, uh, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, not only want online courses, but courses that have, that are packaged in small enough chunks to be able to digest um, in the periods of time that they have available. You know, so we're not talking about hour-long lectures and hour-and-a-half-long scheduled uh, synchronous interactions with um, a cohort of students. You know, handheld uh, technology now is and um, kind of the unbundling of content down to meaningful but smaller chunks is what our students are asking for. And I think there's going to be a, a movement towards that um, level of uh, delivery in some areas. I mean, it's obviously it's necessary to, to aggregate those skills and knowledge back up to solve bigger and more complex problems and to do some of those things in groups. 
Um, it's just when those things, it's, it's, it's as much a scheduling issue as it is a delivery issue in terms of when you expect students to be doing their work uh, and how you're expecting them to engage with you as, as a professor. So it doesn't mean that we're trying to reduce the amount of engagement, and, and actually we're trying to in, increase that. You know, I taught an online course uh, two years ago. It's been three years ago now before the pandemic that um, one of my best students was doing their work at 2.30 in the morning, and I wasn't able to respond to, the, to their questions until the next day. But it was perfectly fine for her. That was much better than us having a synchronous conversation that we could never find a time to do. Um, but we were using a combination of email and text and an occasional um, face-to-face or online interaction, a real-time interaction. Um, and it fit her. She was um, she had a full-time job. She had three kids. She had a disabled husband. Um, and she was doing her work at 2.30 in the morning. And I wasn't willing to get up and do work with her at 2.30 in the morning, but I was certainly willing to respond first thing the next morning. Uh, and it's that flexibility and being able to reach out and and respond to the individual needs of students. Now, the question, and go back to the faculty, is does a traditional faculty model and traditional faculty expectations allow that allow you to do that, or should these be coaches and other people that are involved in intervention who are actually providing that guidance and support in addition to the faculty member who's primarily a subject matter expert, um, not a time management expert, not an expert in trying to get back to people um, in a time frame and with the relevant type of, of information that's essentially just in time uh, to meet their needs. After the break, since online institutions have to compete nationally and internationally, what are online programs doing to stand out from the crowd? Stay with us. What do UCLA, Old Dominion University, University of Memphis, and Miami-Dade College all have in common? Well, they and hundreds of other institutions have used K-16 solutions to help them migrate to their new LMS, then archive their student data. Traditional LMS migration options, like manually migrating courses one at a time, or using bulk migration tools that leave the content fragmented and incomplete, are simply outdated. And so too is archiving student data on an expensive legacy LMS, or in unreadable cold storage. Introducing System Migration and Data Archiving by K16 Solutions. System Migration is an automated solution that allows you to move online content from one LMS to another, capturing details such as course structure, quizzes, tests, and even question pools. And with Data Archiving, administrators can archive student data on K16's platform at a fraction of the price and access that data quickly and easily at any time in their new LMS. Finally, an LMS migration and archiving solution that's kept pace with the rest of technology. To learn more about K16 Solutions products and services, visit k16solutions.com. Now back to the episode. You know, you mentioned the um, sales pitch you might make, so to speak, to a student in Vietnam, but it sounds like the answer really is you're, you're also, of course, competing with Purdue Global and, and all the other state systems um, that have done something similar in the last, um, you know, in the last few years. And so I guess that 
do you do you sense that your primary audience will long be Massachusetts based, or is that not at all your your strategy? For well, it's a combination. It'll be Massachusetts based, and everyone in between, you know, Irvine, California, Massachusetts, and then those in other parts of the world. I think it's uh, there's no limitation on the footprint. Um, and the other thing that's changed that we we don't talk about as much is that. We've not only moved to a remote learning, we've moved to remote work. Um, and so our employees uh, will not be predominantly in California uh, as we expand. And if you look across the, you know, those institutions who are growing and serving a, a larger and larger and wider and wider geography, um, they're not only doing that from uh, student perspective, their faculty and staff are, be, are becoming much more geographically distributed and allows you to reach deeper into pockets of expertise that you might not have been able to find in Irvine, California or in Boston, Massachusetts. So um, we're seeing a, a, a pretty dramatic shift in how we you know, are able to not only learn from home but teach from home. Uh, and that teaching from home uh, is just as important, and not just teaching, but supporting students from home as coaches, as mentors, as advisors. Uh, and, and the question is keeping up with it and deploying people at the right time and so they can be the, as, as helpful as they can possibly be to the individual needs of students. Actually, how many faculty do you have at UMass Global? We have uh, just over 100 full-time faculty, but um, a couple of thousand um, adjunct professors, we use 900 or so of those at, at any one time. Um, so about a thousand people deployed uh, to take care of um, 12, 13,000 students at a time. So the ratio is pretty good. Are those hundred full timers, so to speak, or you know, staff people, uh, professors, are they mostly in California because of the history of they the institution? They are mostly or? in California. Uh, they were mostly in California, and now they're beginning to spread out. So as we have new hires, and, and, and people don't stay in California, they move. So uh, it creates particular, uh, it creates some HR and legal challenges because you have to, you know, meet the requirements of the variety of states where you have people located. So it takes an effort. Uh, it's not an automatic, just go anywhere you want to go. Um, we have to be systemic about the the growth. But yes, more and more our faculty are, are being hired from all over the country without a requirement to move to California. And and you, it sounds like you see that as a trend in the online education um, serving institutions as well. It is. It's a trend and it was exacerbated by the pandemic um, where we, you know, everyone was doing it. And then when we had an opportunity to come back together, um, in face-to-face environments, in campus environments, things we call campuses where people were gathering, um, there's not been as um, there's not been a lot of excitement ab- about that. And so we have 26 physical locations you know, where we were serving students, not just in teaching courses, but in uh, advising and supporting and even recruiting students. And those uh, locations are. Um, being used less and less and are, to, to be perfectly honest, uh, potentially in jeopardy of existing uh, in the future because we don't need that many physical locations when people are voting with their, I, I guess they're voting by not using their feet, uh, you know, and, and, staying, and staying home. The other question then is, 
um, this idea of precision education, which is something you've talked about for years now, um, and and the idea that scale can help um, an online university serve students better. Could you talk about your what you mean when you say precision education and what you're doing at your university to, to try to do that? So I think precision education can, in, in many ways, be synonymous with student-centric, personalized approaches. You know, that is, do you know enough about your students, uh, their behavior, their needs, their goals, um, what they respond to, in order to be able to personalize to them and be more precise in meeting those needs. I'm still incredibly committed to that. Um, the term precision education, because it was so parallel with precision medicine, which is not every patient responds to the same you know, treatments in the same way or diagno- diagnoses challenge. Um, you've got multiple things going on at the same time. You've got to create a personalized kind of health plan for individual patients. Same thing in education. I'm not wedded to the term so much that if people can get their head around personalized, student-centric, on-demand types of of ways of supporting students, I'm fine with that as long as we stay within the the concept of the more you know about a student, the more you're willing to serve up to them something that's going to be helpful uniquely, and sometimes not uniquely in that they're the only one that will help, but that's aligned to what your your data is telling you this student is going to respond to. You know, just like you're, you're able to respond to a specific antibiotic, and if you're not responding to it, we change it. Um, and we're constantly tracking to see, are we able to do this? Now, the barriers to doing that at scale, uh, University of Massachusetts Global has a competency-based education program, CBE program, that uh, was pre-approved by the Department of Education has a direct assessment component where you essentially can move at your own pace through these competencies. Um, That has not fully scaled even at University of Massachusetts Global because our mindset is still fixed courses packaged as Carnegie Unit credits. The Carnegie Unit credits meaning sitting for a certain amount of time with a professor, so to speak. Yeah, it's how much time you spent trying to learn something instead of how much you learned. Um, and we and that's all standardized based on Carnegie Unit. So every college credit follows the same formula about how much time you should be spending both in class and outside of class in order to get a single credit um, and to get a three-credit course. It's a roughly 135 hours, 45 hours uh, in class and twice that much out of class, which is 90 hours, and 90 plus 45 is 135 hours. If you complete that, you know, with meeting the minimum requirements, um, you you pass the course. Um, and we can stratify that into grades, but it's essentially a time-based model. So a competency-based model allows you to move at your own pace, but part of the challenges in, in getting that widely accepted within an institution is that it still has to be packaged in a way that mirrors Uh, traditional Carnegie units in order to make it eligible for financial aid. Um, And the reality is we're all addicted to Title IV funding financial aid uh, as a way to, students are, as a way to support their education, and we are as a way to be reimbursed for um, the education that we're providing. And that currency is literally structured around seat time. 
And and so, in other words, you feel like a barrier to these competency-based programs catching on is actually a kind of a narrative or a cultural narrative of accepting them. Yeah, I think it's a it's and the way we've created standardization. So Carnegie units were created to standardize course credit so that you could transfer them across institutions. And over time, we got a pretty good understanding of. There might be some some disagreement about the value or the transferability of, say, English 100 or English 101, but we have a pretty good concept of what that means if it's a three-credit-hour course. And most institutions will accept transfers in the general education curriculum and beyond as, as course equivalents because we understand the, the value of a credit hour, uh, the way it's been defined through Carnegie units over you know well over a century. Um, what we don't have is, as we get into competency-based, is how much is a specific, what's the grain size of a specific competency and how much is it worth as we stack it towards a degree. And there's two, two indicators of worth. One is what it's worth in terms of what it means to, in terms of progress towards your degree. But more importantly, and I think this is where we're missing the mark, um, our competency-based programs are typically aligned to the workforce better than those that are not competency-based. And so getting some common understanding about what a particular competency means to a specific employer as you're trying to stack that towards a, a degree is critical. That gets at a really important question, which is that the model that you're talking about, does, is it is it safe to say that this kind of model, whether it's at your at UMass Global or other institutions that are doing similar ideas, is it really kind of most optimized for very workforce connected majors, um, rather than a traditional campus, which it might be sending more students to grad work in a discipline of academics, um, and that gets at like what? Yeah, I guess is there is there a certain majors that your model's optimized for, and maybe others it might not work as well for. Yeah, I think it has to be modified for the particular audience. It's not a one-size-fits-all in the online adult spaces any, any more than it should be in the traditional space. Uh, but for undergraduates, I would say it's particularly workforce relevant. And even our graduate students are uh, in the master's program are looking for either a career change or an advancement um, in their job. So I do think it works well for th- for those areas. If you're talking about Undergraduates who need to go away from home to develop a sense of autonomy and independence and problem solving and uh, a better understanding of general education in order to be better productive citizens, um, that's a different conversation. I mean, I think that's a very different conversation. Um, And we want to do our best to create well-rounded students, but our students are coming in with a much more targeted purpose I, I would say very few come in with the full mindset of us, of exploring who they are and what they want to be and looking for help and in, in moving in that direction. I think we help them in that way um, many times, and it's an outcome, but it's not the primary driver of why they come back to get a degree in a relatively open access, online, workforce-oriented institution. Teacher preparation, uh, both here and when I was at National University, um, training people to be teachers uh, at the master's level is a 
is a large one. Uh, social work, we have a large social work program um, with an undergraduate component in, so, in social work that allows them to to be employed in ways that some other institutions uh, do not have. Most of the competency-based education is in the business uh, school, uh, business and professional studies, where we are essentially kind of looking at advancing people in their business opportunities. And um, those are the, the three largest at this point. We have a nursing program that um, does require much more face-to-face um, than than the other programs. Uh, but those programs are limited in their scalability when they, I mean, there's a reason there's a nursing shortage. Uh, the requirements for clinical placements and clinical experience and simulations and faculty ratios that are imposed upon us by the you know, state boards of, of nursing really artificially kind of limit our ability to grow and, and scale those programs uh, and make them incredibly expensive for us to deliver. So in some of the high-need areas, uh, like nursing that I will single out, you know, there are structural barriers to to growing those programs, and they're not as, as wide open in terms of um, delivery model as some of the other disciplines. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting example because then someone might say, oh, if I'm sick, I really want a high standard of training for the nurses that are caring for me. And and even with the other, even with the Carnegie, obviously we're talking about standards that I see how they are barriers to to scaling, but it, it seems like they're also important safeguards to protect. And there, you know, I, I would say teachers are in the same category. You know, we, sure. um, you know, we end up changing our criteria for, becoming a teacher and every state kind of uses an accordion model of who gets to be licensed in that state, especially using temporary licensure based upon, you know, the needs for teachers in that state. And right now we're in a critical shortage of teachers uh, across the United States, especially um, in math and, and in underserved communities. And the temptation then is to kind of lower the standards for, for entry, the barriers for entry into the profession. And then, when we get enough teachers, we tighten it back up. So historically, we've seen this kind of fluctuation of of what it takes to to get the certification based upon how much the how much need there is. And what we see in areas like nursing is that um, and and medicine in general, we've seen this. I think with with physicians, is that if the if the shortage gets large enough, if the crisis gets bad enough. We start instituting new new roles and positions that um, don't require the same degree of of skill and competency. So we now we have, uh, and it's not fair to say they're still highly competent physicians assistants. Now, you know, kind of grew out of um, an undersupply of uh, physicians, MDs who were willing to do you know general practice types of things. Uh, in nursing, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing new layers of, of support and, and activity. I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, I think it diversifies the, the skill set of the total population that's um, either serving education or the health sciences and in some ways pushes us to more disruptive models. Hmm. That's so interesting. And so you create... I'm, you know, I'm hearing certainly a lot about stackable credentials and, and that, but it seems like in a way it, it also um, it gives an incentive for professions to have stackable kind of jobs with different qualification levels to to meet the needs in a time of 
of shortage. I'll give you a, an example, and it's probably one that most of my education colleagues would shiver at. Um, I heard an example where schools are overpopulated and, and are starting to put students into uh, K-12 schools into auditoriums in you know, relatively large numbers on computers doing online work in the auditorium. And it, uh, it was presented as a horrendous scenario. Uh, but we know through some schools like the Summit Schools in Silicon Valley that um, if you do it correctly and deploy the right types of support to manage a large number of learners who are all experiencing something different. Some might be studying math, some might be studying geology, some might be you know, doing any number of things across a number of different age groups. If you structure that correctly and you have the right technology and the right um, uh, dashboards to be looking at, you can actually manage a pretty large group of students in, in ways that have proven to be as successful as a traditional classroom. You have to be really careful with that and, and know what you're doing, but I see that as partially an opportunity, not a total disaster that those are. Now, those that think you know, high-quality teaching and teachers and individual teacher assigned to a group for a fixed period of time uh, as the only model to serve learners uh, are going to push back and say, you know, we don't have enough evidence that you know, this is, is going to be as good or better than what we see in traditional classrooms. But many times it's, it's these shortages and these crises that push us to, to look at those models and experiment them with them in ways that I think eventually one of them is going to go to scale. And so if you had to guess, and it seems like you do think about like where things are going in education trends. What do you, I guess, a two-part question, you know, where do you see online education? How different do you think it'll be in like five or 10 years? And what will the biggest change be? Um, I guess is the first question. And then I'm curious about the campus side as well, but what, what will be different in five or 10 years um, than it is today with online teaching? Well, two things. I, I think it's here to stay, uh, and you're going to see more and more prevalence of um, smaller content, smaller chunks of content aligned with a, adaptive feedback that's automated. You know, so adaptive books have come a long way. Um, this adapt, this notion of the content that's delivered to you, you know, being adapted to your individual. I wouldn't say learning styles because we've got to have a lot of evidence that those original thoughts around learning styles were kind of off the mark. But what's most helpful to you at the at a specific time? So smaller chunks of content deployed uh, on demand, I think, is already happening. It's happening in the way we design textbooks. It's happening in the way we we design courses. Um, and I think it's going to be the expectation. I think when students become, you know, expect them, you expect you to know who they are and what they respond to best, um, that's what you're going to get. It's, it's the same as um, the consumer models that we're seeing uh, in, in the world. Uh, Amazon expects to serve you up what's most likely to meet what your need is at the time that you start looking for something. Um, and I think education is going to move there, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, I do think it, that the speed that we're going to see a transformation, at least in the adult learning space, is going to be how much pressure we get from employers to create competency-based approaches. Because right now, uh, we don't see evidence that employers are fully committed to competency-based hiring. 
because the degree, uh, bachelor's degree, master's degree, even associate's degree, is kind of the, still the currency of record. Uh, as we start seeing another currency, that about competencies and inter, they call interoperable learning records where there's a language that fits with certain competencies in across multiple career opportunities, then I think you're going to see an explosion of movement towards competency-based, smaller grain size content, smaller credentials, micro-credentials and stackable credentials are going to take off when we truly see a, a, a sea change in competency-based hiring. But right now, the degree that you hold and, and the selectivity of the institution that you came from has, has the ability to override competency uh, demonstrated on transcri- transcript you know, in most sectors with the exception of maybe computer science and places where you know, how well you code is, is more uh, prevalent and, and important than you know, where you got your degree from. And so what is, you may have already answered this, but what is the biggest obstacle to that? We all went, we all went to school under a really traditional model. And those who liked that traditional model so much uh, that they kept going to school and they became teachers themselves, or like me, they became a professor and they never left, uh, you know, are in charge of the transformation. And, you know, we don't talk about that a lot. And it worked quite well for them. It worked really well for me. The traditional model worked great for me, uh, but it didn't work well for all of my you know, peers that I grew up with that um, were not able to complete or needed something different or were not satisfied with their, you know, their education, their degree, or it didn't help them in advancing their job. So I think we have to look to the outside for the motivation to, for change, and that's going to come predominantly from employers. And do you think then that the changes you described in the online sector will happen on campuses as well? Or will it actually be a shift away from with fewer people doing residential to because of these convenient personalized options that you described? Well, I think there's always going to be a need for a residential setting because um, we're dealing with developing young people um, who need a holistic approach. And most of in the traditional space, dealing with undergraduates at least, you know, there's a lot more to be learned than the discipline that you're studying. We all know that. Um, and that this holistic approach is going to require uh, residency-based models. Now, we're already seeing a shift even in those in those traditional universities where a large portion of the actual coursework is done online. You know, while other things that happen while you're in college are done, you know, face-to-face in a residential kind of setting. So I think there's always going to be somewhat of a distinction between working adults who have, you know, busy lives of their own and full-time students who you don't have as many competing demands um, and and have, I guess, competing demands on their development uh, as they move forward. But, um, but it's going to be the use of online delivery of content is, is here to stay and will be prevalent in both those settings. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for your perspective and for sharing today. I really appreciated having you on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been the EdSurge podcast. Every week, we dive into big questions about education and look at how systems are changing to adapt. Be sure to check out our latest narrative podcast series where we're following three returning adult college students and looking at the ups and downs of their educational journeys. Episode two just came out last week. You can find it on this feed. 
And we're going to have the finale in a couple weeks. So stay tuned for that. Like every self-respecting podcast, we ask you to give us a rating or review or follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also sign up for our podcast newsletter at edsurge.com. Just look for the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.